Welcome to Podshipper. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld. The official results are in. The people of Britain have spoken, voting for a British exit, dubbed Brexit, with almost 52% of the votes choosing to leave the 28-member European Union. If you want to understand how we ended up in a world where politicians can lie with impunity, where public opinion polling no longer can predict election results, and where our politics turned inward and ugly, you need to start with Brexit. June 2016 was the month that changed everything. Britain's vote was so shocking because it was a self-inflicted wound of a populace that felt like it deserved more and that immigrants were to blame for the demise of Great Britain. Less than five months later, Donald Trump used a nearly identical playbook to win the presidency. The Brexit map to victory was reached by winning over rural voters, older voters, and those in the former manufacturing centres of Northern England. The Leave campaign made false promises to bring back money to the UK that had been going to Europe. The Stay campaign was very successful in London and with young voters. While the vote to leave the 28-nation European Union happened two years ago, progress in defining what that actually means has met a number of roadblocks. This week, Podship Earth is in Britain to hear directly from voters across the political spectrum on the social and environmental impacts of Brexit. I start in Northern England, where I talk with Laura Sanderson outside an industrial park in Rotherham, where 68% of locals voted to leave Europe. Laura, where do you live? At Barnsley in South Yorkshire. Further up than London. North. North, yeah. A northerner. (laughs) So what's the difference between a northerner and a southerner? You'd probably have to ask a southerner, but northerners are a lot better than southerners. (laughs) And did you, did you vote in the Brexit election? I did, yeah. And what did you vote? I voted to leave. And are we leaving? Yeah, it'll probably it's not happen for a while, but eventually we will leave, hopefully. It can't be any worse than it is now, can it? <laughs> What's the worst thing now? Nothing's great, is it? What, what was your reason? Because then surely we can run his own country rather than having it run by someone else. If there's one thing you hope gets better... That would be our national health system, so hospitals and everything, because they're not getting a lot of money at the moment, so hopefully more money could be put to them to make them a lot better and the care for people better. Um, what about the environment? Do you think it'll be better off? I do think it'll be better off, yeah. Um, like I say, it can't be any worse than it is now, can it? <laughs> Laura's sentiment that Britain is at rock bottom and that any change is better than the status quo is a view shared by many who voted for Brexit and it bears a striking similarity to the views of President Trump's base. Next, I travel down to the London borough of Haringey, in which 74% voted to remain in Europe. I talk with Stuart Waldock, who's dropping off his granddaughter at a local elementary school. How did you vote in the Brexit? I voted to remain. And and how are you feeling two years after Brexit? I think it's the biggest mistake. I, I hate people telling me, well, it's democratic, because... Democracy in Greece meant if you change your mind, you had another vote. And that's what we, you know, I think we should be doing. I don't know that we would win the vote even now because there's still bloody-minded, stupid people. I think we've had 70 years of European peace. My parents involved in the Second World War. 
and uh, I'd, be, I'd hate for that sort of thing to happen again, but and France and Germany have become allies instead of sworn enemies. You know, people say to me, we, we survived during the uh, Second World War on our own, but we didn't. We got loads of freebies from America, we're not going to get them again, and uh, we can't provide our own food, so we've got to trade internationally, and what better to do it than in a big trading block? As you can hear from Lauren Stewart, even two years after Brexit, emotions are still running high. Next, I travel to the countryside of Kent, which is the breadbasket of England, and it's also one of the counties closest to the English Channel. You can practically see France. Kent voted 59% to leave Europe. I met up with two friends on opposite sides of the Brexit fence, Richard Larkin, a third-generation farmer, and Gordon Clark, a builder. Richard, how did you vote in the Brexit vote? I voted out. Okay, and Gordon? I voted in. Excellent. So we got an in and an out. And you remain friends. Absolutely. What motivated you to, to vote for the UK to leave the European Union, Richard? I voted out purely because I am tired of people who I have not elected, who I do not know, telling this country what to do. And I do not want any longer this country to be told what to do by these people who cannot even organise themselves properly. Gordon, what, what motivated you to...? Obviously a different thing to Richard. My feeling was that provided we keep Europe with us, then it's going to be a better state. I'm British through and through, but... Europe is too close to forget about it. So, Richard, you come from three generations of farmers. This, the Kentish Weald, this whole area, is famous for its farming. Can Britain survive without all the customers in Europe? Most of the custom is in this country, but we are able to spread our wings. And recently, uh, the dairy industry, which is struggling has started to sell fresh milk to places like Qatar and also they are now beginning to sell to China because the Chinese like the fact that it is a good, clean product. Isn't it easier to sell to France? But not at the price. So they're not willing to pay the price that British farmers need to survive? Exactly. British farmers are always having to find new markets because the subsidies <clears throat> which are paid to the British farmers are being reduced and reduced and reduced as they are across Europe but it's not enough to live on. So we have always had to adapt, find new markets, find new ways of production. So joking aside, gentlemen, has it split families apart and communities? What I will say is the younger generation, such as my children, all voted to stay in because they couldn't see any other way of surviving. How did, when you told them that you voted to leave, were they upset with you? They just probably thought I was a silly old man and, and wasn't looking to the future. But it has made no difference to our relationship whatsoever. <laughs> but did it put a little bit of a chill on any, not, uh, no, not on yours, but on any relationship? It obviously has done, but probably with politics affecting more than anything else. Brexit, it's just ridiculously confusing. Like, it just goes on and on and on. It's like, is there Brexit fatigue? 
Absolutely. I think a lot of British people are getting very concerned that this is taking far too long. They are also thinking that we might give up too much. So, And if we do give up too much, what's the point of leaving anyway? And yes, I believe it has split some families, but personally, family ties are stronger than Brexit. They should be. We are British. We adapt. And that's how I feel. We have always had to adapt. We are an island nation, and I think that is one of our strengths. We are not bordered by anybody else, and it's a case of let's put the great back in Great Britain, as far as I'm concerned, and let's get out. It may be an ambition to remove ourselves from Europe, but it doesn't seem very practical. No, I think if anything is going to be a problem, it's trying to stay on our own with the use of so much things in Europe that we need and to say forget about them. It seems like everything's been put on hold until Brexit gets sorted out and Brexit doesn't seem to be getting sorted out so it seems now like a big distraction. I totally agree with you. Um, I feel that in England, we have got a bit lazy. We have, especially within the farming community, have become very reliant, as, as the NHS, on our Eastern European friends to come over and do all the manual labour of picking the fruit, um, strawberries, raspberries, apples, um, and helping harvest all our crops. You have fruit dying on the vine because there's no one to pick it. In America... Americans aren't willing to go and do that manual labor. So it's not like the, the immigrants are taking the job. No one's now doing the job. What's happening in Kent? The English people have forgotten how to do it, and they are not prepared to do it. They're much uh, more prepared to sit on their backsides, take the money from the states in benefits, and not get out there and support themselves. Whereas... The Eastern Europeans, they are very good at working, they are very good at harvesting, and virtually every farm around here will have some people from Europe coming over every year to do the harvest. Isn't it a little bit of a confusing message if you're sitting in an Eastern European country and you hear England doesn't want to be part of Europe, but we need you to pick the fruit and work in the farms? I understand there are fewer coming over because of the confusion. To understand the perspective of someone who is on the receiving end of that confusing message, I talk with Henrik Hetfleisch. Henrik, where were you born? I was born in Poland. And how long have you lived in the UK? Now, 18 years altogether. How many Polish people do you think have come to the UK? Since Polish accession to the common market, uh, about a million is estimated right now. How many have come back? I have no idea. What kind of things do Polish people do in the UK? There's nursing, uh, a lot of waiting stuff all around, but also uh, basic things like fruit picking and food management and processing. Um, yes, huge numbers of them there, all around the country. What was it like when you first came to the UK? I had an idea and a feeling when I first came here of people be, being very accepting, not caring exactly about any labelling of you. Just as long as you were a contribution, they were welcoming. Well, this was revised <laughs> somewhat. So what is the feeling now? 
Well, people don't feel welcome, you know, there were all sorts of vandalisms and people were battered and just for the fact they were foreign. And where that comes from, well, that has many sources, of course, frustration, competition and all of that. Um, and it's always easy to put the onus on someone else when we feel we haven't achieved our own goals. That's a human tendency, simply. And that's being abused politically, leading to this. And, and people see that and feel it, they actually experience it. So they, many leave for that reason. Are you tempted to leave and go back to Poland? I quickly realized one thing. My odds in Britain still, with those numbers, this result are much better than in Poland, where I feel unwelcome by the self-confessed 90% of the Catholic population there, because they disapprove of homosexuality. It's a sinful thing still. And I just felt that pressure that don't feel it here. I still feel much more at home here than I ever felt there. Simple solutions in an ever-increasingly interconnected and complex world are elusive, and yet the appetite for these quick fixes is alive and well in both the UK and the US. Next, I talk with Paul McNamee, the head of politics for Green Alliance and Greener UK, which is a group of 13 major environmental organizations with a combined membership of over 8 million supporters. These groups believe that leaving the EU is a pivotal moment to restore and enhance the UK's environment. So, Paul, many people are absolutely clueless as to what Brexit means. They read about it in the newspaper. They heard about it a lot two years ago. What was Brexit and what's happening now? It's a really good question. The people who don't know what Brexit is are like many of them are sitting in the House of Commons at the minute, I would say, as well. So after the 2015 election, a strong grouping of um, Conservatives wanted us out of Europe. And the answer to that was to have a referendum. So once the 2015 election had happened, Cameron had to... Um, put forward this referendum, which he did so um, in 2016. Um, the government supported remaining in the EU. So what, what is the European Union? So the European Union is a group of 28 countries across Europe, um, so the UK and 27 other what we call member states, who um, form a pact uh, that is based on four freedoms, which is the freedom of movement of labor, the freedom of movement of money, the freedom of movement of goods, and the freedom of movement of services. Um, so based on those four freedoms, these 28 countries um, kind of share trade and economy between them. So this was a referendum on getting rid of those freedoms? We still wanted to engage with these other countries. It was just about the specific form of the European Union and whether the UK should be a part of that. Was anyone talking about environmental issues in the whole Brexit discussion? Uh, despite our best efforts, I have to admit, no. I think it's safe to say that the environment um, did not appear very much in, in the referendum campaign at all. Most of the UK laws on the environment were laws that originated in Europe. Yeah, so over 70% of our current environmental standards come from the EU. I would say there are certain risks that arise from Brexit for the environment. Um, there are also some opportunities. If someone said in any country, Paul, the US... France, Canada, anywhere, overnight, 70% of the environmental laws on the books will disappear. That's startling. Yeah, but they're not going to disappear in reality. And what we've seen is the withdrawal bill, um, which is um, a piece of legislation to bring over the current environment, to, not just environmental standards, all current standards in the, in the EU, bringing them over into domestic law. Doesn't each bill require implementing legislation? It doesn't, you can't just do one bill, wouldn't 
the air quality, the wildlife, the water quality, because they have different delegations. I mean, the mechanics of how you implement environmental law will have to be rewritten in a non-European Union context. So, yeah, there are some gaps. So one is environmental principles, like the precautionary principle, the environmental impact um, principle, the polluter pays principle. So because they're not actual standards or regulations, they've not necessarily been brought over with the withdrawal bill. The second gap is the um, governance gap. So this is about how the laws are implemented. It's about advising, it's about uh, monitoring, and probably most importantly, it's about enforcing. So if we lose that function that the uh, European Commission um, currently provides, it, we'd end up with what what we would call zombie legislation, where it's like written on the statute book, but there's no way to implement it. A new governance body or bodies will be needed to implement these laws that come across, but Parliament needs to have a close watch to make sure that none of those changes are made um, affects the essence of those laws or what those laws are actually trying to achieve. How's the environment remaining relevant, given all the other Brexit challenges? Environment as a political issue is actually... Uh, getting a lot more attention than it has done in the past 10 years. So there was um, an election in 2017 where the Conservatives lost their majority and polling that came out straight after, um, which surprised even us, said that climate and environment were, um, for under 35s, the top two issue. And for under 24-year-olds, climate change was the number one issue for 24-year-olds. So more than housing, more than health, that's what they cared about. So actually, in terms of what the government are doing and what the government are thinking of at the minute, we know that the environment is is right in the centre of their thinking at number 10. Paul, is Brexit a distraction from dealing with real environmental issues? I would say it's really hard to disentangle the two. The UK is signed up to the Paris Agreement through the EU. Um, So now what kind of role do we have to play as a climate leader in the world? So the two are entwined, and particularly on the decline in nature, um, I'd say many environmentalists will agree that the that one of the major advantages to leaving the EU will be that we are no longer in the what's called the Common Agricultural Policy, CAP for short. We think that overall CAP has encouraged practices that haven't necessarily been the best for nature or the environment. So, Paul, so on agricultural policy, there's an opportunity through Brexit to actually improve environmental standards. Yeah, so we're expecting... Um, before the summer recess, um, an agriculture bill, which will basically be an opportunity to start designing a brand new land management and farming system for the UK. Um, That's kind of cool. It's kind of a mixed bag all the time, and we just have to make sure that we're identifying the issues that, that may be a risk to the UK and making sure that we're kind of trying to come up with solutions to issues that, that may arise. But, I mean, I came into this interview thinking it was all bleak, but there are actual opportunities. There are some opportunities. I think it's been a hard slog so far. So it's two years since the referendum and we've we've had to do quite a lot of work just making sure that environmental standards are the same when they come across and that no gaps arise. But yes, there are definite opportunities, both kind of in terms of environmental policy, but also, for want of a better word, the instability in politics at the minute means that there are also really, really good opportunities. So what we're saying is when this new bill comes through that will do the governance and the principles, we're saying that needs to go further. That needs to be a new Environment Act that will be a world leading um, act for the for nature and the environment that will restore nature and that will allow the UK to be a world leader in how it governs its natural environment. So is there a lot of Brexit fatigue? 
you can't have lived through a, a more exciting two-year period. We've had, you know, a referendum, we've had the fallout, we've had a general election, we've had constant battles between factions of, of all parties in the UK. We're seeing kind of constitutional questions rising that have never had to be answered before. I think a lot of books are going to be written about this two-year period, so it's quite exciting to have lived through them. In the US, I think the environment is now perceived as a partisan issue, whereas in the UK, what what do you think leads the UK to have a conservative government that cares about the environment? Unlike the US, I don't think that environment was ever abandoned by either side, the left or the right. I think they both come at it from different ways. So the left very much kind of progressive, protecting of the environment. The the Conservative Party, which is the centre-right, very old school conservation conservatives, stewards of the landscape. They are they mostly represent rural constituencies, rural towns, rural people. And um, so they see that themselves as as kind of um the party of 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 rural the rural UK. We have six hundred and fifty MPs in our parliament, only five MPs voted against the Climate Change Act. So even back then, there, w- there was that cross-party support. But I think also a lot of work had gone in to making sure that that cross-party support existed. So given where we are now, what's your biggest fear about Brexit and the environment? What what could still go wrong? So the biggest thing that could go wrong, I would say, would be a no-deal Brexit. So negotiations are still ongoing. We're, we're kind of agreeing on a transition agreement, what the withdrawal will look like, and then what our future relationship with the EU will look like. If all of that collapses and we just end up leaving the EU, that will be a disaster for environmental standards and protections. And when will you know whether there's a no-deal Brexit or not? We should be seeing a white paper next week on the withdrawal. Hopefully that will give a clear indication that no deal is off the cards. Stanley Johnson's been a member of the European Parliament. He headed the European Commission's Pollution Division and he was just made into a reality TV star in the UK. He's written dozens of novels and books on the environment and he chaired Environmentalists for Europe, which argued for Britain staying in the European Union. Stanley's son, Boris Johnson, was the chief architect and champion for Britain leaving Europe. Boris is now the UK Foreign Secretary. Stanley, I saw you on TV the evening of the Brexit vote, and at that time, everyone thought your side had won. Well, we thought we were going to win. Um, Yeah, you're absolutely right. I set up an organization called Environmentalists for Europe. It is true, we fought very hard, but that was not the way the the vote turned out. I'm saying, okay, we we are leaving. So what is the priority? The priority is make sure all those good things which were put in place over 40 years, because we have been in Europe 40 years, are retained. What matters now is to make sure that we retain or we create somehow the enforcement and reporting mechanisms mm. which we had in the European context. You know, if the worst came to the worst, the European Commission could challenge the government for failing to implement you know, an EU environmental directive. And they could even take the, you know, the country to court. You could have a ruling from the Court of Justice. You could have a fine imposed. So we need to work out how we do that. And we also need to be sure that we, we don't lose the energy and the dynamism which came from being part of that whole European construct. We need to make sure that we keep going ahead with environmental um, measures. We are, I should say, in a completely um, Brexit-dominated situation mm. in Britain. We got used to the European institutions saying, look, frankly, you have all these laws, take air quality in London. An extra 4,000 deaths a year in London as a result of, of um, and maybe 20,000 in the country as a whole. 
And the issue was, why have we not implemented EU laws? Now, EU air pollution laws, and uh, a gentleman called James Thornton has been over here mm. and he set up Client Earth. Yes, and Client right. Earth, on the NIDC model, decided it would take our government to court for failing to implement EU laws on the environment. Brilliant, totally brilliant. Yeah. And it's now had three judgments from our own legal, highest legal authority, which I think is our Supreme Court. But nevertheless, that dimension is, is vital. And that dimension, of course, will disappear. Boris is getting more and more interested in this whole environmental issue. Good. For example, he is going to be chairing later this year the third international conference on illegal trade in wildlife. I mean, it's concentrating, of course, on the elephant ivory issue, yes. which is completely, completely, you know, top of you know, top of the range of our concerns. Although there's also plenty of other illegal trade issues, like you know, the rhino issue, and actually coming up the road now is is hippopotamus, hippopotamus teeth. Mm. Anyway, Boris is seized of all these things, and which is which is good, which is good. If you think about, you know, the trajectory of the African elephant population way back in about, I'd say, 1975, you had 1.4 million African elephants. Now we're down to less than, probably less than, fewer than 300,000, something like that. Why did it go so wrong? For my money, it went wrong because at a vital moment, we failed to implement the international ban on the trade you know, what we're fighting now is to try and close the market down. And it's, it, it is, well, I put it this way, we're virtually there. Ironically, the United Kingdom remains one of the largest trading countries. For I didn't as, realize that. As far as ivory is concerned. By, why? Because there is an exemption in the law as implemented, which says pre-1947 ivory can still be traded. And that, of course, has been a Fantastic incentive, you know, to antique dealers and so on and so forth. Unbelievable that they're still selling ivory, calling it antiques in the UK. Talking of wildlife, when you were in the European Parliament, you had a major role in stopping the Canadian seal hunt. Maybe tell us a little bit about that. They were killing about three or 400,000 seals at that time a year. And they were harp seals for the most part, but also hooded seals. About 80%, 75%, maybe even higher, were coming to the to the EU countries, the European countries. So I said to myself, well, if we can get a, an EU ban on the import of seal products coming into Europe, that may really impact on the, on the hunt. And that's precisely what happened. And it was a very good example of how, um, you know, you can pick a target and achieve that target by using public opinion. There were wonderful moments as we had, you know, victory after victory. And finally, that ban is still in place yeah. and it has been challenged on more than one occasion. The US and the UK used to work together closely on environmental issues. Stanley, is that being lost? I can remember April the 22nd, 1970. 1970, I went to New mm. York and I participated in the first Earth Day. For us, a lot of the inspiration of, for environmental policy in Britain came came from America. I mean, it really did. That's where, for me, that's where that's where that movement began. There have been many, many inspirational movements which have come from America. I mean, if I think of the ozone issue, for example, you know, Europe was very reluctant to move on ozone. If it hadn't been from, it hadn't been for actually, it was Jimmy Carter's administration. They really made it one of their main diplomatic initiatives to try and bring Britain and the UK and the EU as a whole on board. And that's why we eventually got the, you know, the Ozone Convention and the Montreal Protocol. So 
there's been a sort of constantly productive interchange between the US and the UK and Europe on the environment, whether, you know, whether he'll be part of this great move to try and bring the United States back into, for example, the Paris Convention, I do not know. Trump is not making any kind of noise there. No. We had Macron the other day coming over, being asked here on television, will, uh, you know, will Mr. Trump rejoin Paris? Uh, Macron saying, well, if he does, don't he mustn't think he's going to get a renegotiation out of Paris. I mean, he was being very firm on that. And that's an interesting point, I think. We mustn't think that there's going to be a reopening of the Paris Convention in order to bring bring the US in. It'll be Paris or nothing. So your latest book, Compromat? My latest book is called Compromat, K-O-M-P-R-O-M-A-T. With a very Compr Russian... Russian, yeah. Yes. Apparently he's just been picked up in the Oxford Dictionary of English as one of the new, the new additions to the, you know, to the vocab. Well, yes, I thought to myself perfectly obvious that the Russians were fairly heavily involved in the US election, but were they also involved in our UK referendum on Europe? So I've had real fun um, writing a, a thriller, which is going to be made into a six-part TV series in Britain. Thanks to Laura Sanderson, Stuart Walcott, Richard Larkin, Gordon Clark, Henrik Hetfleisch, Paul McNamee and Stanley Johnson for helping me understand everything I wanted to know but was previously afraid to ask about Brexit. Travelling around England this week, I was struck by how emotionally charged the Brexit vote remains. On the positive side, I witnessed the beginnings of what could be a British environmental resurgence. Unlike the US, where the Trump administration is extremely anti-environmental, in the UK, the post-Brexit conservative agenda includes a consensus to push for stronger environmental laws. It shows that a very different path is achievable, even in the US. Next week, we examine why mainstream media outlets are willing to have sport, weather and traffic every hour, but can barely cover environmental issues once a month. When climate change stories are covered, we question why editors are giving equal weight to climate deniers in the name of impartiality. Talking of impartiality, please like our show on the Apple Podship Earth page. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey from the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Carter, me, Jared Blumenfeld. Have a great week and don't forget to exit through the chip shop.